Okay. Um, somebody asked me about uh, the problem of, of the quotation in um, Mark 1 about Malachi and Isaiah. I think we can talk about that after class. I just don't have time to go into it now. We'll be happy to talk about that. Okay, let's uh, try to finish just a few final words. An upshot of what I've tried to say is to show contrary to a number of scholars that Matthew's quotation uh, of Hosea 11.1 1 shows actually tremendous exegetical sensitivity to Hosea's hermeneutical method. Um, and it's from the quarry of the book of Hosea itself, and it's reverberations of Numbers 23 to 24 that Matthew gleans everything he has expressed in the Hosea 11 quotation. Um, so I've taken a famously thorny passage, tried to show how the immediate and broad context of the Old Testament quotation makes it much more understandable and that Matthew was aware of this. Um, we looked at this and I've, I've offered attempted solutions to that, but still uh, we, we, we have commentators who contend that um, uh, New Testament writers quote, and this is from a, <laughs> an evangelical quote, course what that means now in America I'm not sure but uh, he says this New Testament writers were not making an effort to remain consistent with the original context and intention of the Old Testament author and uh, he uses the use of Hosea 11.1 and Matthew 2 is a good example of such twisted quote twisted exegesis and concludes quote there must be more to Christian biblical interpretation than uncovering the original meaning of an Old Testament passage well what does that mean we're unconcerned about what God says in the Bible. I, I, I don't know what that fellow means. Uh, I'm not going to say who that is, but he's really fallen off the rails uh, over the past 10 years theologically. So um, I don't think he has a high view of scripture anymore, but uh, that's an impression I have. I can say that because I'm not mentioning his name. But in contrast, a former teacher of mine, as Lewis Johnson, boldly proposes a diametrically opposite position. He says, quote, the New Testament author's handling of the Old Testament context must be carefully studied. It is this procedure that almost all of the serious problems of the use of the old and the new find their solution. Many of the well-known uh, interpretive problems become uh, easier to handle if only the interpreter gives himself to a careful, rigorous analysis of the context of the Old Testament citation. There are many nagging questions, he says, about the use of the old and the new, but the way out of the problem lies in this direction. Rigorous, hard, exegetical work in the Old Testament. It's here that evangelicals need to devote a great deal of work, since it's only the painful, laborious, perspiring pondering of the problems one by one, with the use of all our exegetical tools and procedures that we will be able to bring some conviction to our friendly enemies of the sensibility of a solution to the exegetical problem of the use of the old in the new. R.T. France says about our passage, quote, Matthew was deliberately composing a chapter, because he's talking about some of the other quotations too, in chapters one and two. Matthew was deliberately composing a chapter rich in potential exegetical bonuses, so that the more fully a reader shared the religious traditions and scriptural erudition of the author, the more he was able to derive from his reading, while at the same time there was a surface meaning sufficiently uncomplicated for even the most naive reader to follow. The bonus meanings, when you delve into the deeper context, 
and faith an increasingly rich and positive understanding of the person and role of the Messiah suggested for those with eyes to see. Uh, it's a very interesting article in New Testament Studies 1980 uh, that that comes from by R.T. France, who died a few years ago, defining the eloquence to be warden of Tyndale House. And um, uh, basically, he's arguing there are two levels of communication by Matthew. It's really brilliant because Matthew is able to hit new believers who are naive about the Old Testament. And also, he's able to hit those with a very deep understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to make a transition and turn to the use of um, Isaiah 49, 6 in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse uh, 47. Any, any questions as we're making that transition? Just interesting. If Matthew's the gospel, um, particularly targeted at the Jewish audience, then they wouldn't let him get away with just wild quotations of the Old Testament, which have nothing to do with context. They just say, uh, hold on a minute. So, yeah. You know. Well, I would agree with you. Um, on the other hand, you have, to, you have to remember that not only some evangelical scholars, but those outside the evangelicalism uh, think the Jews were wild and crazy anyway. So, if Matthew's done something wild and crazy, well, it's up. Okay. I mean, that's another perspective. But I agree with you. I think that, that what you have just said is the point. Thank you. Okay. okay. So you again, you have the um, the handouts. Uh, I'll be looking at them on the overhead. You don't have to worry about looking at them on your computer because, um, and I'm sorry about this, they're, they're a little out of order and I don't want you to get confused, but at least you do have them. Um, Turn the TV back on. You want to tell the hair and you want to mind it. Turn yourself off. Oh. Okay. Unfortunately, the same remote does both. Turning it back on. <laughs> there we go. Sorry about that. Thank you. I hadn't noticed that. Okay. You would turn to um, Acts 13:47. Just for a moment, then we're going to Acts uh, to Isaiah 49. Um, just some introductory comments. Uh, I was mentioning R.T. France at the end of uh, uh, the last lecture, and he wrote an article in Tyndale Bulletin in 1972 and said this, quote, a common use of the Old Testament by Christians, almost the only use made of it in some Christian circles, is to search the pages for predictions of events in 20th century politics with a view to plotting their future course and often calculating the nearness of the final end. This Qumran-like use of scriptures gained fresh momentum since the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. God is at last, <coughs> in the view of many, fulfilling his very long-standing promises of territorial restoration for his covenant people, and many Christians are firmly convinced that this is the beginning of the end. 
Hans K. Rondell, in a very good book that I recommend, The Israel of God and Prophecy, has rightly explained that the existence of this conviction that, uh, that is, that things are coming to an end with the um, uh, restoration of the land of Israel, this, he says this conviction is due to the widespread influence of dispensationalism, um, that is, that restoration is part of a, a biblical plan. Uh, he says the key doctrine uh, of dispensationalism, of course, is that Israel and the church are eternally separate. Uh, Charles Ryrie, who I took a class under at Dallas Theological Seminary, argues, for example, that the church could not have been the subject of the Old Testament prophecy since it was created only the day, on the day of Pentecost. And therefore, the church is not fulfilling any of the Old Testament promises to Israel. Consequently, literal physical Israel must fulfill them in the future. And he bases this partly on 1 Corinthians 10.32. And I'll read that to you. That is, he bases the separation of uh, Israel from the church on 1 Corinthians 10.32. For it says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So, you see there, there, you have Jews and you have the church of God. Well, the contrast there is Jews together with Greeks as unbelievers over against the church of God. It's, it's not saying there's this eternal separation between um, Israel and the church. It's, it's contrasting unbelievers as Jews and Greeks to the church of God. So uh, I would not be convinced of Dr. Ryrie's exegesis I'm sure we're going to be convinced of some of mine. Um, so, as I say, he, he appeals to that passage to confirm this distinction. Uh, the question isn't whether or not there's a difference between unbelieve, unbelieving uh, Israel and the church, but whether or not the church is referred to in the New Testament as the Israel of God and is presented as the new true spiritual Israel. And we're going to see our passage does address this issue, whether uh, what's the church's relation to Israel. Now let's look at the New Testament context. And very broadly, this is what I do. What I'm trying to do is give you a case study. And remember, I do a case study, full steps on uh, all nine steps. I go through them in the last chapter of my handbook. I recommend that um, uh, to you. Um, and you can see exactly how I do that. I'm giving a very abbreviated. I've only got like, you know, 28 minutes to do this. Usually I, I take about uh, an hour. Uh, so I'm going to have to fly through. But first of all, what I do, let's get the, you want to get the context of uh, the New Testament passage. So basically what we're doing here is, remember, we're following this, um, this outline here that I gave you, the steps. So first, the first step, identify the reference. Well, we've done that. It's a quotation. And now we're looking at New Testament context. And um, first of all, Acts 1.8 provides the outline uh, and uh, the plan of, of the book. So very interesting. Um, if you remember Acts 1.8, um, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the end of the earth. So the first part of Acts 1a 
uh, occurs in one through seven, where uh, the ministry of witness in Jerusalem occurs in uh, chapters eight through 12, narrates the ministry of witness in Judea and Samaria through Philip, Peter, and John. And then beginning with our chapter, our chapter introduces the last part of the book where it gives the witness of Paul. But it all originates, all three of these uh, witnessing uh, phases uh, originate under the power of the Spirit, which first came at Pentecost. Um, so uh, just a few comments um, about the context. Uh, Acts begins with an emphasis on the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom in verses 6 through 11, um, especially as that is expressed through the enthroned Messiah's rule in the church by the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 2, that uh, uh, it says that Jesus has poured forth his spirit, and uh, which he received, and it, says, and, and it goes on to describe him as sitting on the throne of David. So uh, the messianic reign has begun uh, according to uh, chapter two. And then um, the, the spirit's rule um, first expresses itself in various ways. One of them is through tongues. Another is in the increase of the size of the church from 241 all the way to 6.6. So there's the emphasis on the, uh, on the growth of the church. Then we have the defense and martyrdom of Stephen in chapter six and seven. Chapters eight through nine, the church continues to spread with the keynote being Paul's conversion. Chapter 10, Peter is taught that Gentiles can partake of the end time blessing of the spirit, which he thought was limited to Israel. Um, and uh, I'd like you to turn to that passage. Uh, we're, not, we're not far from it in chapter 13. So in chapter 10, um, verse 44, while, while speak, uh, Peter's speaking about the Messiah, and Gentiles are present, in, in 1044 of Acts, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Um, so look at verse 45, it said, it's very interesting, it says, all the circumcised believers, the Jews who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also. I want to ask you, why do you think the Jews... These are Jewish believers. Why were they amazed that uh, the Gentiles were, were uh, filled with the Spirit here, were given the gift of the uh, Spirit? Presumably, either because they didn't think it could happen, or because they were, it was a sign of the end time uh, promises. Well, you're right on the sign of end time promises. You're right on that. Um, and you're right that they didn't think that the Gentiles could get it. The question is why? Why did they not think the Gentiles could get it? And what promises are in mind? So you started this off. <coughs> Any ideas? Because they didn't think the time for that had happened was yet arrived. No, they thought it had arrived. In fact, I'm gonna, well, 
let's see if we can have, have any other contributions. Um, anybody else? What? First of all, why did they think uh, the Gentiles could not have the spirit? Um, and what promises could be involved here that would make them think that? Joel, thank you. And does anybody know? Was Joel a prophecy about Gentiles or about Israel? Now it does say, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh there in Joel. So Walter Kaiser takes that as a reference to Gentiles. But if you do a word study on Kolbasar, all flesh, in the prophets, in context, it'll talk about all flesh in Israel. And I, I this is the context here because it, it climaxes in Zion, deliverance is in Zion here in Joel 2. Okay. I can't get in depth there, but so Joel 2, I would contend, is a prophecy for Israel of the Spirit. So it's natural that Jews would think this is for Jews, right? Wow. What does it mean that Gentiles are getting the Spirit? What would you conclude? What have they now become? Population. What? Population. Thank you. They're part of true Israel. Yeah. And that astounds these people. Um, so, uh, I, yes, I think so. And, and we find so many other prophecies applied to the Gentiles. We've already seen the one from Hosea 1 and 2, remember? And Romans 9 says this is not for us Jews alone, but also for Gentiles. Then he quotes the restoration promise about Israel from Hosea 1 through 2, applies it to the Gentiles. This happens again and again and again and again. And I, as I've said, I don't think uh, it's saying that the church is just like Israel. They are, but they are because they have become true Israel. So after Peter's escape from Herod in chapter 12, the focus in chapter 13 now is on Paul, and that continues to the end of the book. The change of focus begins with an evangelical sermon, which in many ways mirrors Peter's sermon in Acts 2. So if you look at those two sermons, you put them up sermons as parallels, uh, there are many commonalities, and they're, they're meant to be similar, um, just to show that, you know, Paul <laughs> is certainly on the same authoritative level as Peter, that at least is what it means, um, and just as Peter was dominant early, now Paul is going to be dominant with the same message, and so you remember in uh, chapter 13, he's come to his first synagogue, and so he's preaching to them, about the Messiah. He goes through biblical history, Old Testament history, and then uh, finally, um, uh, in verse 37, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, let it be known to you, brothers, through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is free from all things from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. Take heed, therefore, that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you, and it's judgment. Behold, you scoffers. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. And so then um, they had another meeting. Um, it says, when, well, no. It says, when this meeting uh, of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas 
who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Um, and, and the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the words. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, again, contradicting the things spoken uh, by Paul were blaspheming. And so the majority in the synagogue reject. Who accepts a minority of Jews and a majority of God-fearers and Gentiles? Now, God-fearers were Gentiles who uh, were, were loosely connected with synagogue worship. Um, so uh, those are the first Gentiles that, that believe. Um, they become the majority, and, um, and, and that's really who composes the churches. Then when Paul writes his letters, it's a minority of Jewish Christians, and, a, and then God-fearing Gentiles, and then newly converted Gentiles. Um, so it's, it's kind of those three levels. And, um, and, and so when the Old Testament is written to these churches, uh, you're going to have different levels of understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, but through the rereading of, of these, through discipleship, through the continued reading of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church, uh, the newly converted Gentiles would slowly progress, but surely come to better understand the Old Testament and Paul's references to the Old Testament. Um, but as a result, in verse 46, Chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And verse 47 gives the reason they're turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. So now we have to go to the Old Testament context. We've identified the reference we talked about New Testament context. Now we have to identify the Old Testament um, context. And, um, and you have a handout. It's on your computer, but I'm just going to put this up. This is pretty small, I think. Let's see how it works. Yeah. Uh, see how big you can make it. Yeah, let's see what we can do. They're just a little bit up. This is the worst. Something so hard Is that is that enough? Yeah, I think that's enough. Thank you. There we go. Okay, that's sufficient. Okay, so the context, what, uh, the point here is you want to look at the chapters, especially preceding your passage. And um, we're not going to look at 1 to 39. That's sort of intact in itself. Uh, probably be beneficial to do so, but it's main, mainly best to focus on chapters 40 to 54, which is a segment of the book of Isaiah. And so uh, uh, in, in chapter 41 to 42, 9, we find Yahweh's incomparable sovereignty as uh, one of the major points 
Then uh, in the next segment, 42 to 19, the world is exhorted to praise Yahweh for the exercise of his sovereignty. And then uh, in 43 to four, beginning of 44, he promises to restore Israel, to renew them spiritually. Now that promise had begun earlier, even in chapter 40 and verse 3, but it becomes uh, the dominant focus in 43 and 44. Now to demonstrate his ability to do that, to do this, his incomparable sovereignty over Babylonian deities is stressed again. Um, they have no power. I am the one who has power. Don't, uh, uh, and, and actually he's exhorting them to leave Babylon because there's a temptation to uh, uh, worship the idols and the gods of Babylon. And this is why he talks about his incomparability. By the way, just a, a little parenthesis here. The incomparability of Yahweh is found throughout the Psalms, is found throughout Isaiah, usually in the context of the first Exodus. And the reason is that's where God demonstrated his incomparability. In fact, he makes incomparability statements, just uh, like who is like Yahweh, etc. And um, he shows incomparability to Pharaoh as a God, especially by hardening Pharaoh's heart, because uh, uh, Pharaoh was the incarnation of the sun god, and the sun god was seen as having uh, created all things, and uh, the, the heart of Pharaoh uh, uh, was seen as uh, uh, controlling all things, and so God controls his heart as a result. He shows himself incomparable. He shows uh, what a sham Pharaoh is. So, um, then, uh, five, a lament for Babylon because of divine judgment in verse 47. Uh, and then, uh, six, Israel is exhorted to believe the prophetic promises made in chapters 41 to 47. Um, that's what happens in, in 48. And it concludes uh, with an exhortation to Israel to testify to Yahweh's redemptive love for them. Um, and uh, actually, we need now to go back to uh, turn to Isaiah 49, and you'll notice that the last verse of chapter 48 says there's no peace for the wicked, and that's referring to Israel. It's a conclusion the majority of Israel is uh, going to reject God's overtures about restoration, and um, there'll be no peace for them. Well, up to that point, the servant has been discussed, and it's been the nation. Now we come to 49, and the servant's discussed again. You'll notice 49.3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel. But this time we're going to find it's not the nation. And the reason is, what's well, similar to the Hosea quotation in Matthew, the reason is this servant's going to do what the national servant should have done. Um, so... 49.1 to 6 shows Israel not heeding the exhortation and rejecting his attempts to redeem them. Uh, and no doubt, 48.22 is an apt description of rejecting Israel. So Yahweh directs his redemption to Gentiles, and they are asked to pay attention. So notice 49.1, listen to me, O islands. If Israel won't listen, listen to me. Pay attention, you peoples from afar, because the peoples close, purportedly close to me, aren't listening. So it goes to the Gentiles. And uh, so this is a redirection of redemptive history. Um, 
in the sense that the focus was on the restoration of Israel, but we're going to see really uh, becomes more on uh, the Gentiles. Um, so the summary idea of Isaiah 49, 1-7, to 7, <coughs> is this. Yahweh's servant will be rejected by Israel in his mission to reconcile them to God and will be given a renewed mission by Yahweh in which he'll bring salvation to the Gentiles, thus glorifying God. Um, now, just, uh, just to run through the, um, the argument of this chapter, don't worry about the brackets. Those brackets represent a, uh, a method of discourse analysis that I don't want to have to go through now. I'm just going to broadly go through the logical development of thought here. Um, so the Gentiles are addressed to pay attention. And it says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. And, uh, and, and, and that was the means of um, bringing about the goal of uh, putting the servant in the shadow of God's hand. Uh, why, why, did, why did God come in? From the body of my mother, you name me, he's made my mouth uh, like a sharp sword. Lord, call me from the womb. From the body of my mother, you name me. Um, and, and that, that is really, this is the commission. And now he's equipping him for the commission. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he's concealed me. He's made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So that is really the commission and, and, and the equipment that he's given to carry out that commission. And um, then God says to him, you, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. But we have a problem. We have an adversity now. But I said, I toiled in vain. Well, toiled in vain in what? In carrying out the commission. Okay. Already we have this, the commission has been carried out, but it's in vain. Servant says, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, yet, nevertheless, even though it seems like I've toiled in vain, surely the justice due to me uh, is with the Lord. My reward will be with my God. So it looks like what he's done is in vain. Yet he says, I'm trusting. In fact, I believe that God will reward what I have done. And so uh, we're going to see how God's going to reward that. He goes on, he says, now, okay, here, here's how I'm going to reward you. Now, says the Lord, inform me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God is my strength. So his mission is to bring Jacob back in order that Israel might be gathered to him. And he repeats that. He says, is it too small a thing? And now we're, we're off, okay? But you have this. Um, yeah. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I'll make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That's why it's not in vain. And that is his reward. He, he is going to carry out this commission. It will not be in vain, even though at a point it seemed like it was in vain. And um, 
So the, the huge question here, who is the servant? Well, first of all, you can see here that um, his, it, it restates his commission to Israel to raise up the tribes of Jacob in verse 6 and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So the servant can't be the nation <laughs> because his commission is to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So he's not Jacob. He's not Israel. And furthermore, he's not even the faithful remnant of Israel. Notice, you're also to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's the remnant. So that, this can't be the nation as it was earlier in chapters 40 uh, and, and following up to this point. Uh, this is likely uh, an anonymous servant who's to be identified with that individual servant of Isaiah 53. And, um, uh, and probably we're to see that it's, it's through Isaiah 53 you see that he's going to return Jacob and the preserved ones of Israel. Um, this is not Cyrus. Some think it's Cyrus because in chapter 45, God says, I've chosen Cyrus to, to, to bring Israel back to um, her land. But this goes much further than anything Cyrus did. So this can't be Cyrus. It's not the prophet Isaiah. This is something more than the prophet Isaiah ever did. This is an anonymous servant, the same anonymous servant of uh, uh, chapter 53. And, and I think we can go on and say it's the Messianic anonymous servant. So uh, that's sort of the argument. Now, the big question is, and um, uh, I think that you, yeah, you, you've got all these handouts, but I go through here and just talk about who is this servant? Because um, it's the big question of the text. And um, so uh, let's say, does the servant here then refer to the nation Israel or an anonymous individual? So I say, first, the following things are predicated to the national servant, which are not predicated to the individual servant in this passage. And uh, number one, it's very clear from the other context where Yahweh's servant Israel is used that this title refers to Israel as a national plurality of people. Okay? Here, that's not so clear. Secondly, Yahweh's servant Israel is viewed as in need of redemption. That's not the case here. He's the one who's bringing it about. Similarly, Yahweh's servant Israel is pictured as having transgressions and sins. And being in need of redemption and reconciliation, the servant is not in need of that. So this is not the nation. Um, <coughs> and there are things predicated to the servant. It could never have been predicated of the nation. And that is, um, first, he is the one who is to bring the nation back to Yahweh. So it can't be the nation bringing itself back. Secondly, the servant is viewed as an individual who will restore a plurality of the people of the nation Israel to Yahweh. Third, he'll bring salvation to the rest of the nations of the world. Fourth, he mediates a new covenant from the nation Israel. If you go on and read verse 8, 
fifth, he's seen as one who releases captives, whereas the nation Israel is seen as the captives. Six, he's rejected by Israel, but does not become discouraged. Um, so uh, those are just some reasons for seeing this servant as an individual servant. Um, so I, I, I had a doctoral student who was working on the use of Isaiah in uh, John 12, and his work in Isaiah, uh, he found that some commentators had uh, discovered this uh, kind of pattern in Isaiah, that is, in, in 41 to 48, you have the national servant. In 49 to 53, the anonymous servant. And all of a sudden, in 54 to 66, you get plural servants. You never get plural servants uh, named at, for the nation before uh, chapter 54. Why? Because they're corporately identified with the anonymous servant. I think that's, that's the conclusion he draws. I think he's right. Um, so... Uh, <clears throat> Now, as we come back to our passage, uh, after you, we, you look at Old Testament context, you want to look at the comparison of the text. I'm just going to make a few comments. Again, you have all this, so just maybe pay attention. Yeah. A few changes in the text here. Uh, the English is below, and we have the Greek here in Hebrew. First of all, uh, the LXX adds Edu, behold. Neither the Hebrew nor the, the uh, Acts has that. I don't think there's any significance to that, but you want to notice the changes. Also, uh, the Greek Old Testament uh, adds um, yeah, um, a covenant of a race, covenant of a race. Um, and uh, that actually is found in verse 8. So he's 49, he's pulled that up from 49a. Yeah, I don't think there's any great significance um, in that. Um, and uh, what else? Um, you do have the Hebrew having, uh, uh, I've given you for a light of the nations, the word Natan um, uh, there, and um, uh, the LXX follows that, but um, the beginning of the quotation in Acts doesn't. It has the word Tithemi, a different word. I've placed you instead of giving you. All of that probably shows that um, this is probably a paraphrase. Um, of, of the Hebrew, um, especially beginning with the, uh, the phrase to Ani, which is to be. From there on, Acts follows the uh, Greek Old Testament and not the Hebrew, um, especially with uh, uh, regard to um, uh, this has my salvation to the end of the earth. This just has salvation to the end of the earth. So long and short of what I'm saying is, this is a paraphrase. But the, 
The differences are insignificant. It's no big deal. Um, causes no problem in, in understanding. Uh, one commentator uh, just says this is a pre-rendering of Isaiah 49 6. So, so that's a comparison of the text, comments on the variation of the text, and then uh, hermeneutical usage would, would be the next major, I think it's point number six uh, or seven on, on, on the method. So we're going to keep in mind, well, let me ask you, hermeneutical usage, we go through the 12 steps or the 12 ways use of the old uh, can be used. Is this fulfillment of direct verbal prophecy, fulfillment of indirect uh, typological prophecy? Is this analogy? Is this a prototypical use? Um, is this a perverted use? Is this an ironic use? What do you think? Try your hand at it here. A fulfillment of direct verbal prophecy? Okay. Now, when you say that, you need to give an explanation of why you're saying that. <laughs> what? You didn't tell me that. <laughs> Why? By the way, it's very simple. And it's so simple that you probably won't think of it. The context. The context in Isaiah 49. It's just a direct verbal prophecy. Okay. It's as simple as that. All right. It's as simple as that. If it were an event. And he's saying this is fulfillment, then we've got some different element. We have indirect typological prophecy, but it's just direct fulfillment. But as I said, classifying these is not the final step because here you have some issues. <coughs> Who is this applied to in the text here? You might tell me. The Isaiah 49 6 reference. Who is it applied to in our text? Yes, it's applied to uh, uh, Paul and, and the apostles. Let's, let's make sure your text is open there. For thus the Lord has commanded us. It's the apostolic circle. I placed you as a light for the nations that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Uh, the, the text, the prophecy was, it was the anonymous servant. How can, how, how can this be applied to uh, what? Corporate, um, Corporate solidarity. Yeah, I think so. Remember the chart we had up there? Servant and servants. And now we got pluralized. Uh, and so I, I think that is the answer to it. Um, so, um, uh, and, and I think, if you read my commentary on Colossians, on that very difficult passage in uh, Colossians chapter one, uh, where, remember that passage that says that the, Paul is filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I think there, Paul himself in his unique apostolic status is continuing the servant's work. Not all of us do that as an apostle, but he is continuing. And I think that's the case here. The apostolic circle is uniquely continuing the servant's work, but I think that we can say that uh, secondarily, a secondary idea is, by the way, who is the servant in Isaiah 49? Israel, remember? My servant Israel. So the apostolic servants are, are uh, the beginning of true Israel and carrying this out. And uh, that's why they're 12, right? Because there were 12 tribes. So um, 
But, but I think that this applies not just to the apostolic circle. I think it also applies to, uh, to believers. And the reason that I do is because of this chart right here, just give me a couple of minutes. Um, here, uh, when we come back to Acts 1 8, the germ of the whole book, see, uh, this idea of receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you is from Isaiah 32 15, when the Spirit will come upon you uh, from on high. Uh, in, in, in fact, commentators will acknowledge this, uh, the, the margins of Nesalalan. Uh, acknowledges and even you be my witnesses israel was to be witnesses that's unique that the combination of the plural you and my witnesses it's unique enough for an illusion here when it says uh, you will be my witnesses so they're carrying on israel's task which they failed to do and, and but who, who's being addressed here by the way notice isaiah 49 6 is mentioned in 1 8 remember where it says even to the end of the earth even to the end of the earth at the end of Isaiah 49 6. So that's the tip of the iceberg that's expanded in 1347. And, um, and, and yet, it, it says that the Holy Spirit is key, but we find that Gentiles receive that Holy Spirit. We're almost finished. Almost finished. <laughs> but remember chapter 10? Gentiles receive the Spirit and become part of true Israel. Yeah. And uh, in, in, in chapter three as well, uh, actually chapter two, it says um, in verse 38, repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this receiving of the spirit, which was key to witness um, and to carry on the work of Israel, which Israel didn't do, um, is true of all believers because all believers receive the Holy Spirit. And yet it is true, of course, there was a unique way in Paul's apostolic uh, uh, status that he carried out the continued work of the servant. But we, secondarily, we are part of true Israel. And that's part of the theological, once you get to the theological use of the Old Testament, uh, ecclesiology, I think a secondary point in the light of Acts 1 and the use of those Isaiah allusions, including 49, that, that we're part of this task of Israel being restored and, and carrying on the restoration. And by the way, there's a Christological point here before we leave. What's the Christological point? Union of Christ. Uh, I like that. That's part of the corporate idea that we talked about. So you're, yeah, that's another way of saying it, but this is something else. Who is it that's commanding them in chapter 13? For the Lord, who's the Lord in the context? It's, if you trace it, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one commanding. Who commanded in Isaiah 49, 6? Yahweh. Yahweh. There's an identification of Yahweh theology here. It's, it's beautiful. And the part of the practical takeaway is um, that, uh, uh, you know, if we're part of true Israel, what was, what was the task of Israel? Well, it should have been to be a light to the nations, which it ends up only the anonymous servant could do and his followers in corporate solidarity. Um, but 
The task of Israel was to be a light to the world. And uh, that's our function. And uh, are we doing that as the church? Uh, are we doing that in word, uh, in our own vicinity? Uh, or as we have a mission-oriented uh, function and go to the ends of the earth, uh, and even where we are, do we are we a light not only in our speech, but also in our uh, lifestyle? Remember, we're in the image of God in order to reflect his glory, which is that light shining out, the light to the nations. Let's pray.